Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello, listeners, and welcome to an episode of the podcast Horror Vanguard uh, for the week of Enter Week here and the month of Enter Month here in the year 2024. I am currently in low orbit uh, on a space station because the the sun has a big frowny face on it instead of the usual cool sunglasses and smiley face. And I'm about to launch on a desperate mission to cheer the sun up. I am joined, as always, by uh, Orbital Command John, aka the Liquid Guy. <laughs> uh, well, as 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 Babylon Zoe have taught us, uh, and I've always internalized, I've always wanted to go into space, man. That wow, that's a niche uh, reference which no one will get. Um, I'm very, I am very, I'm very excited to be uh, staring at the dark void inside of us all. Um, the cosmos is a, a vast and terrifying emptiness in which we are forced to confront the apocalyptic nothingness of our own being. Um, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. I, I, I thought it's where we go to to fight and or fuck the Gorn. <laughs> uh, does it have to? It, it, it's not an either or, right? <laughs> That's true. You know, so many years later, we know shockingly little, little about the Gorn. Where, where's um, my where, Paramount? Where's my Gorn spinoff show? <laughs> Gorn. Oh my God. Gorn in the family. It's about the Gorn moving to Earth. And he becomes not a stepdad, but the dad who stepped up. <laughs> and uh, the heartwarming, the heartwarming theme music would kick in right about uh, here. Uh, done, of course, by Underworld. Or if we can't get them, burial the back now. So let's do that. You know, when I think of like feel good '80s family comedy shows, I think of Burial. <laughs> uh, hello, everybody. It's it is a space themed. HV for the week. We're doing a two. We're doing a two-hander. We're doing a an, a special uh, double feature today, um, and I am enormously excited uh, to to be a kind of sonic cosmonaut with you as we uh, go back to Mission Control and ask Ash to explain what Danny Boyle's Sunshine and Pitch Black are all about. Space is, or perhaps it's better to say, became, the place we stage our visions of futurist anxieties. Whether utopian, dystopian, or somewhere in between, stellar fiction, not just limited to sci-fi, becomes a vehicle for cathexis for a population that has replaced the priest with the tech priest. The divine left the heavens in our popular imagination, but our gaze remained upward, towards a now empty throne. Our visions of the celestial retain these salvific and damnable qualities we once found in more sacred appraisals of the sky. African futurism and solar punk search for off-world saving graces, while genres like dying earth fiction and alien invasion stories cast our doom in the falling of stars. No matter how far or how fast you travel, you always wind up back at home. It's more than, despite everything, it's still you. It's always you, and it's always going to be you. 
and there's something horribly haunting in that. All space stories are just ghost stories, haunted either by a wishful, that could be us, or a stomach churning, that could be us. We're not so much dreaming of futures that could yet be, as much as we're trying to work our way through the things that made us run from home in the first place. Fuck you, dad, I'm running away, is the prevailing attitude of so much space travel fiction. We have all we need to realize Star Trek on Earth. We could already produce beyond scarcity, we could use the social technologies of the left to liberate ourselves from Fordist time and all oppressions. The eerie presence, the silent absent technology, in these science fiction films are those very social technologies. That which we need to free ourselves from the gravity well of oppression is depicted through its absence as more miraculous and unexplained technology than any universal translator or faster than light engine. Pitch black and sunshine, the infernal and the divine, emerges spiritual tales, fables for the pacified awaiting salvation, sleeping soundly in the hands of technocratic priests who may, if we are good, one day deliver us from evil. If this is all we can find in space, I'll take a moldy old haunted house over the vast expanse of future Starbucks franchise locations any day. Join us as we discuss a double feature of Pitch Black and Sunshine. A sweet memory, a sweet memory of her joyous of living. Her joyous living. Yes, 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 yes. I am excited. Um, of our double feature, uh, which one would you like to start with? Uh, well, you know, I, I think I think it's appropriate to do things in chronological order today, and I think uh, start with Pitch Black. Uh, what if uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter went to space? <laughs> um, <laughs> What sorry if, our formalism zone is going to be a little blended between sunshine and pitch black so where would you like to start and and talking about the kind of like construction of these two movies they they play off each other surprisingly well i think so i think so and i think maybe we can start with talking about like what these uh, how these films render space itself as a particular site of horror because mm-hmm. I think there are some important distinctions here. Both of these are horror movies, but they are horror movies in the, uh, that are dealing with very different kinds of horror or trying to evoke very different kinds of horror. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, so how would you, for people who've not seen it, how would you kind of like, what kind of horror movie, what kind of horror movies are we are we dealing with today? Uh, I mean, I, I feel that Sunshine in a way is the more standard of of the kind of films that we're talking about right it's it's armageddon yeah w- what if what if uh an amazing british filmmaker tried to remake armageddon <laughs> <laughs> but it's not it's not a bunch of like plucky working class it's not the plucky working class aestheticized depiction that conservative american like political candidates use the only thing that can save us from an asteroid is drill baby drill bring back the oil jobs yeah 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 and so that, uh, that, that's what, really yeah it's it's like what if what if the people who made armageddon had watched solaris a lot uh, <laughs> and then made the movie um what if bruce willis was super into 2001 and space odyssey this is the kind of movie he would make it's it's nerd armageddon yeah 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then, and then, Pitch Black. I, I find Pitch Black to kind of be a bit more interesting in this respect because it it's it's a ghost story told in the vein of Alien, right? Like, like the the kind of like uh, I don't know, nighttime ter- nocturnal pterodactyl monsters that are in Pitch Black mm-hmm. were originally intended to be ghosts in the first draft of the script. Yeah, um, but like I don't know, space ghost stories. Tend to, tend to almost always work better when you render the ghost as an alien instead. Yeah, and like uh, here, here we have a just a just a really solid like. Oh, what if you crash landed on a planet full of pterodactyl xenomorphs? And yeah, uh, uh, but but also but also as as that franchise unfolded, it gets really weird. <laughs> oh, they 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 realize that everything cool in the first Pitch Black movie was Dune, and then they just kind of rolled with it. Yeah, absolutely. Weirdly, I kind of respect that ability to go, yeah, we don't really have, like, an original contribution to make, but we can do what we're going to do really well. <laughs> it's and, and this says a lot, but it's like it's like 13-year-old boy Dune is what the Chronicles of Riddick wind up becoming. Yes, it's 100%. Like, oh God, what, if, yes. what if Paul Atreides, instead of, like, you know, having the weirding way or whatever, like, dorky shit that was, what if he had, like, energy beams? <laughs> What if you shot him with a laser and then he like went Super Saiyan and the laser hurt you instead? Uh, amazing. You, you'd get something. You'd get something incredible. <laughs> Which you know maybe yeah. one, maybe one day we'll jump into the rest of the Chronicles of Riddick movies because they get way weirder. It's it's like Warhammer. So it's, it's like uh, Dune. There's there's a lot of goofy stuff that goes on in the rest of the Riddick films, but in Pitch Black it's much more restrained. Yeah, it's uh you, we've got a creature feature. That's what we've oh, got. Yeah. We got yeah. a creature feature. Uh, it's a creature feature in space. I think that's cool. I think, that, and you're right. These two films definitely do play off each other in interesting ways, and hopefully that will come out as we start to talk about more of the films in turn. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, like, like obviously the the big contrast here, like you know, pitch pitch black and sunshine. It's like it's the, the, the both of these are very indebted to their approaches to things that are like core to the to the cinematic experience. Right? It's it's light and dark contrasting each other. How do how do we how do yeah. we how do we depict and handle total darkness as in pitch black? And how do we depict and handle the kind of like overwhelming burden of light that is sunshine? Yeah, what do you think about how those films deal with that? Because like one of the things that I sort of I love about Sunshine, that the sun itself has this like light has this almost like unbearable physicality to it. You know, I there's did. like the members the members of the crew who are kind of addicted to it. And I really, really like how Sunshine gives sun the sun itself gives the presence of light so much physical weight mm. you know it's it's just like battering the ship and and you can hear it inside of the ship it's it's really got this physical tactile quality to it yeah you and, you, you get cooked in it like it's it's so kind of visceral feeling and and i feel that like you know like night is is a bit more conventional in pitch black right it's the this kind of like endless robing thing it's the shroud right it's it's very like how we tend tend to approach night when we're being a bit poetic about it, but I do really like the uh, use of filters in yeah. pitch black, right? Like attempting to depict all of the different types of light this desert planet is being hit with. Uh, our, our attempts to kind of negotiate Riddick's like super nighttime vision. There, there, there's kind of like a I, I don't know. There's like a dedication to getting weird with it in pitch black that I really appreciate. That's also in Sunshine. I mean, there's a basic kind of like. Uh, filmic problem right darkness is an absence how do you how do you represent that so you Mm -hmm. have to have 
you have to have like a particular you can you can never film in absolute darkness because you're not gonna see anything so you have to have these filters you have to have um i suppose what you could call it is like a stylization of negativity right you you stylize the absence of the thing that's supposed to let you see what is happening so i think i think that 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 gives us a good spot to jump into pitch black specifically yeah let's do it let's do it so so how do you how do you feel about our xenomorph pterodactyls i you know what i i i think as a creature feature goes this is really solid they understand that you should save the spectacle for like uh, and you should minimize the spectacle and a lot of it is done again the techniques are nothing new right there's nothing kind of all that groundbreaking here but the way that it's done is just really it's like yeah these people know why space is scary like i'm i'm okay with that yeah i I love i love the creature design i love the concept i love how they're kind of like i don't know cicadas in a way they they take like a 20 year nap and then they wake up and just kill everything and fucking die and then go back in their little caves and go to sleep yeah evil space cicadas what like it's great (laughs) (laughs) it's a very it's a very fun monster it's a very it's a very unique monster you know it's it's got its own little rules uh just in general i I love the design of the creatures too They, they have a very like wispy inconsistent quality about them that makes them like you know like fun to perceive yeah yeah riddick even has like a like makes makes the monsters more interesting in a way right he's got this kind of like almost perverse appreciation for their bestial qualities yes um and the whole and like the whole the whole film is essentially like it's a setup between two groups that are positioned as equally animalistic right Mm -hmm. riddick versus 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 these creatures that have awoken from their, you know, big sleepy time nap and are now cranky <laughs> and really hangry. Aren't we all? Aren't we all just space I mean, I, pterodactyl cicada xenomorphs? I, I get it. I, it, whomst among us has not been like, I'm going to eat that pilgrim. You know, and what, what I will say on behalf of these space cicada pterodactyl xenomorphs is that they never invented bounty hunting. They don't have policing. So who's to say who's right and wrong in the uh, situation at hand here? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and we will get onto we will get onto uh, bounty hunting in space a little bit later. Do 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 do. Speaking of bounty hunting in space, that is the next point in our notes, which oh, yeah, technically sorry. makes uh, this. Oh, what's up? Yeah, sorry, that's completely my mistake. When we'll not get onto it later, we'll get onto it now. <laughs> well, I mean, a uh, p- point of order. Technically, now is a little bit later, so you w- were correct. Uh, I was technically correct, the best kind of correct, <laughs> <laughs> as anyone who has gone to grad school will tell you. So, so uh, space bounty hunting, right? Like this is this is like a stable uh, trope of of science fiction, right, or a certain type of science fiction, anyway. How how do you feel about how space bounty hunting plays out in uh, the I guess what we can call the Chronicles of Riddick prequel? I, it is easier to imagine intergalactic space travel than the end of <laughs> antiquated American frontier style policing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know. I always get slightly. I always find it slightly uh, kind of grim when even in sci in sci fi in our kind of model of the future. We still have these, um, again, deliberately anachronistic models of of like societal safety. Mm-hmm. What about you? What are your thoughts on the space bounty hunters? Yeah, so I think it's 
if if anything in this movie is kind of tired, right? It kind of doesn't work. It's the whole space bounty hunter thing. It, the, yeah, and, the, it, and, oh, and the space bounty hunter is like this. Um, is also uh, supposedly a morphine addict. Yeah, and it comes out of nowhere as well. Like, like it's it fits if it's the kind of like pacing of this, the building of tension that Johns is struggling <laughs> with addiction. Johns plural, uh, not not John the liquor guy, John the space bounty hunter guy. <laughs> the worst influencer on X, by the way, aka yeah, Twitter. By a long way, by a long way. Uh, I have never tried to collect bounties on people. <laughs> we collect bounties on theoretical approaches to fiction that you can enjoy uh, and help us uh, hunt down by going to <laughs> patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. There it is. <laughs> where, where you can put up a, a uh, bounty, an old Western style reward poster and tape it to the side of the pterodactyl cicada xenomorph hive cave. And we'll uh, get to it when we're done with our previous bounty hunting. Yeah, because, like, the amazing thing is, you go, okay, him capturing Riddick makes literally no sense if you think about it for more than 30 seconds. I mean, like, n- nothing nothing involving Riddick makes sense when you think about it in, in the slightest. Because it does, it is that, like... Riddick reminds me of like it's it's like a child's power fantasy, right? Like Riddick is invincible. Riddick is capable of everything necessary in the given moment. It's the kind of Batman level plot armor where like he's supposed to be just a guy, which later on changes when he gets superpowers. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, he's supposed to be like just 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 kind of like a guy with fancy fancy vision. Um, he's 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 a guy with like like D and D dark sight or something. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly. Doesn't it. even have true sight. He could. He could not spot a magically concealed entity. Yeah, no. It, it would be. It would be a hell of a role for him to manage to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like, 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 and that, that kind of makes everything with Riddick a little ridiculous. Like, like, no matter how he's chained up, no matter how he's pursued, he's kind of uncatchable. In in a certain sense, and like that, that does make everything with him like it's just like, oh, that's goofy. How did he do that? That's kind of silly. Yeah, the the big question is like, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's very telling that like there is no. So I think when it comes to the representations of future, you have a couple of choices, right? So you can either go. There really isn't a kind of state anymore, and the institutions of the state, like organized policing or the army or politics. Or like none of that really exists. Mm-hmm. And so you have these kind of like pre-political institutions of like bounty hunters, etc., or mercenaries. Or you can go the way that Sunshine does, where you go, actually, there isn't nation states, but there is a kind of like planetary political consensus that allows for the operations of technology with a certain kind of like I don't want to say arrogance, but you know what I mean, right? Oh, oh, oh totally. Like this this pitch black is in the same vein as like the the kind of Star Wars approach to depicting space and intergalactic existence, whereas I think Sunshine is more in the Star Trek vein, where it's, yes, it's mostly about really political good. consensus and political negotiation. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, a really useful uh, taxonomy to map these two onto. So did you did you want to talk about uh, Mr. Riddick as an antihero? 
Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah, the, the, the coolest... Like, what if you gave a 13-year-old their first ever monster energy drink <laughs> and, asked, and asked them to design a character uh, that would be, like, a movie star? I, I I love this. I love this. It's 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 a yeah. It's a it's a little boy who wants to do Batman fan fiction. But one, uh, uh, DC Warner keeps keeps giving him copyright infringement notices. <laughs> yeah, they keep and, sending you like really rude emails. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and Batman wears tights, and that 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 makes his budding sense of gender uncomfortable. So we, what if it, what if yeah. instead of tights he was wearing like goth tech wear? Yeah. What if? Yeah. What if he was? Like, yeah. It's a thirteen-year-old goth kid who is like, I'm gonna write better star wars um <laughs> i i think it's difficult i think it's difficult to get like too invested in pitch black because it's just a little too silly to take seriously like they try and give some moral complexity to to riddick and like this idea of like becoming the one who saves people but i don't know as and as an anti-hero goes it's never it never goes beyond anything that's like wouldn't it be really sick if you managed to do this? <laughs> Riddick is edgy Han Solo. Oh my god, perfect. <laughs> and that's and that's why I kind of like can't get behind him in pitch black. That's why like the worst stuff in this movie, to be honest, is the stuff with Riddick. Like get yes. rid of Riddick yeah, yeah. and get rid of Johns and make this a movie about like a bunch of like, you know, Muslim guys trying to go to Space Mecca. And the the like captain of the pedestrian freighter that was taking them, and then also like a, a, I guess a guy who's like the director of the British Museum in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Space who, museums. Yeah, who just who just got done looting a bunch of like African artifacts, and now he's hauling them to to space England. And like like all of those characters and Jack, like all of that's very interesting, very dynamic, very weird, very engaging. All of those characters are compelling because like 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 our space British Museum guy is so anachronistic here. He's just like the hell's he doing there like he's just he fell out of a different movie and landed in pitch black (laughs) just wandered onto set one day and they were like yeah okay (laughs) yeah it's it's like oh we need another fucking character uh we have a pith helmet anywhere (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm always happy when i see keith david turn up like Mm -hmm. keith david keith Keith david fucking rules true um but yeah it's it's difficult to take riddick like seriously as the dramatic center of the action as it were and i think that's because he's not no it's it's carolyn fry is the dramatic center of this movie it's her film riddick is correct riddick is the baggage that she has to carry in addition to all of those fuel cells uh but the creature design is fun and it's like uh it's it's again it's hard to take the movie it's hard to take the movie kind of seriously and get very critical about it because the movie itself doesn't take itself seriously i think i think it takes itself seriously in the kind of like power fantasy way like it takes itself seriously in that it needs to keep giving us excuses for riddick to be more badass and more cool yeah and that that it's it's one of the things that kind of undermines the what is otherwise like a very interesting film that sets up a very interesting like universe like it's 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 kind of like perversely yeah, I mean, interesting that the same if if there's a future where we're where we have like inter interplanetary shipping lanes and all of this stuff and we still have like british guys fencing stolen african artifacts like that's that's a messed up political situation that is very interesting to think about i what i will say is like if you've never seen pitch black 
I would I would definitely recommend watching it and then I would recommend actually what I'd recommend first is watching the Chronicles of Riddick and then watching this to see how they get from the Chronicles of Riddick how they get how they get from this to the Chronicles of Riddick because it is uh as you say in many ways deeply interesting but also deeply and kind of like profoundly silly. Yes, yes. Um it's a, so speaking of silly do you want to talk about space theology? Oh, I am so excited. I am so I am so excited to talk about uh going on space hajj. I I'm I'm really interested to hear your takes on this one because all all I could think about was like Pitch Black is clearly indebted to Dune. Like this yes. is clearly a movie that is heavily influenced by either Dune directly or the kind of impact Dune has had to a certain strain of science fiction. And Dune itself borrows heavily from Islamic themes. That's that's kind of like I, I was just too stuck on that little bit of like, oh, it's Dune again. So so what is what is your take here? Um okay, so full context keith david is in this film playing a um uh, a devout muslim teacher who is on um pilgrimage with uh two maybe three acolytes or uh, sort of students um he is uh, he's muslim and it, like is on the way to what's referred to as new mecca so one of the pillars of islam is um uh hajj the duty that once during your life, Muslims are expected to journey to Mecca, you know, with the caveats of various religious exceptions, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, it's it's extremely interesting, the, the the designation of new Mecca, because this proposed, this kind of like implies some oh great God. kind of crisis in Islamic theology that's mm-hmm. happened <laughs> between now and the time of pitch black. Um and it would require like a, a, some kind of like serious like theological problems to be solved. Uh, I I'm just sort of like genuinely baffled that they take something. For, they've clearly you're, you're quite right. They've taken something from Dune, but they've just kind of slapped this into the world without going. Hang on, what exactly does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think this goes back to our earlier point too of like there is something that is interesting to the point of being baffling about about this this plot point that you're talking about right now and the movie is just like it's it's an aesthetic trapping in the film it's there to give it some interest and i'm like no no no. this is the thing that makes the movie worth watching is this stuff vin diesel gets in the way of everything that makes this movie worth watching i want i want the 20 minute like i want keith david to give me the 20 minute exposition scene explaining the great crisis that required relocating mecca to space (laughs) (laughs) and how like the various different um uh, uh, branches and 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 uh, schools of islamic thought have coped with what would be the biggest like religious crisis for like thousands of years we see this is this is we need pitch black 2 that that breaks us out of the the riddick universe and gives us the good stuff that's in this film uh it's it's honestly it's it's i i i'm i've honestly thought about i've thought about keith david's character in this film so much more than almost anything else that's in it <laughs> <laughs> So speaking speaking of the other things that are in this film, I think it's time we talk about uh, less the chronicles of Riddick and more the genders of Riddick. That yes, we have to get into this. 
let's 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 just begin by by losing our minds if you will and and trying to figure out if mr riddick is a turf uh, uh mr riddick why are you showing up in these pictures with jk rowling all, all of a sudden <laughs> i i am very concerned yeah why are you tweeting all of this weird stuff about women's sports <laughs> yeah why What's why are all this about? why are, you you went from being this kind of like you know like uh, wannabe suave space criminal and then you couldn't cash in on that so you took your rightward heel turn. Yeah, and that's what happens if you listen to too much Joe Rogan in cryo sleep. <laughs> <laughs> he's just got he's just got like Jordan Peterson's podcast on in there. Right. Well, I was gonna, yeah, I was, I was gonna say we got Rogan going into one ear and then like an audiobook of Harry Potter going into the other. Okay, okay, we should we should explain this for people should, who have not so have in, not seen the film. In Pitch Black, uh, there is a young boy named Jack, right? Jack uh, is shown kind of idolizing Riddick. Riddick is, is because again, Riddick is a character for young boys. He's, he's anti-authoritarian mm-hmm. to a fault. He's individualistic. He's egotistical. He's violent. It's everything that would appeal, appeal to, to, a, to a young boy on the, on the cusp of manhood. Uh, Jack shaves uh, his hair to look like Riddick. Jack uh, fashions up a pair of goggles, you know, to to kind of mimic Riddick's uh, uh, goggles, which we'll get more into Riddick's eyesight in a bit here. Um, and then when the the space pterodactyl cicada xenomorphs, uh, I, I think I'm forgetting one of one of the adjectives, one of the nouns we're using for these creatures at this point. <laughs> um, but when they when they finally hatch out, Riddick deduces uh, using his, uh, I guess degree in exozoology that they uh hunt by smelling blood mm-hmm. and also echolocation uh but but the blood thing is is important um and then oh it turns out that jack uh is is having his first period jack is uh trans maybe or has a complicated gender is maybe trans mask we don't really know the movie doesn't get into it but uh needless to say jack's gender is fucking complicated and Riddick outs him in, in front of everyone in like the cruelest way possible. And I think what's really telling about this scene, what really hit me with it this time, is that Jack immediately breaks down and starts crying, right? Which is totally mm-hmm. fucking reasonable. No one does shit except for Carolyn Fry, except yes. for the ship's navigator, right? She's the one who takes charge in that situation, attempts to console Jack, attempts to keep things together. And Riddick, in proper turf fashion, is is using the, this kind of gendered position to harm someone solely for his own egotistical benefit. Yes. And material gain, because he thinks it will solidify himself as some kind of, like, leader of, of the, in group. the group. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting in as much as, like, this is, this is uh, deeply problematic intra the text of the film, which it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also reflective of the extremely normalized and casualized transphobia yes uh in kind of like mainstream hollywood culture of like 20 years ago yeah i mean like 20 years ago and of course still through to today yeah of course and we could even Um, i mean like uh, uh, a sub point here uh, this is even worse because in the original script riddick was a woman yeah that was written out of of his character because studio executives were like Actually, no, that's not going to carry the franchise. Also, the character of Carolyn Fry was originally the protagonist. Yeah. Uh, not Riddick, again, but studio executives were like, no, we can't really we can't really do that, right? It has to be Vin Diesel's character to build the franchise around. And so we have this kind of like layered, uh, like this kind of anti-feminist capitalist misogyny that's structuring the gendered discourse that emerges in the text of the film. Yeah, Absolutely. This kind of uh, originary point where Riddick is supposed to be female 
gets additionally complicated when you realize that like the things that make Riddick so cool, not like this naturalized model of biology doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, should we no. should we talk about eye surgery? Yeah, let's let, let's spend a little minute here talking about how Riddick, a turf, had gender affirming surgery. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Riddick, Riddick, uh, while he was in prison, had uh, a shine job, uh, as as he calls it, done on his eyes that allows him to have some kind of like uh, uh, th- th- that like membrane in a cat's eyes that lets you see in the dark, um, which Riddick specifically does because it, it makes him more masculine. It makes mm-hmm. him yeah. able to better perceive people that he thinks of as predators, right? It makes yeah. him better able to fight. It makes him better able to perceive himself as being tough. It is it is so unbreakable from his sense of his own masculinity that we cannot read this as anything but a gender-affirming surgery. There is a direct correlation between that surgery and, like, a Stephen Crowder's chest implants. <laughs> <laughs> right? Bodied. Yeah, um, and of and of course it's like it's. I, I think it's very interesting that it's it's feline, uh, a feline addition to your ocularity, which is mm-hmm. heavily masculine coded. When of course traditionally under under patriarchal uh, systems of culture, cats have very often been uh, coded as feminine, as mm-hmm. as that you know. Men have dogs, women have cats. Uh, so again, there there is this layer, additional layer of complexity to the gendered discourse that the film itself is actively trying to subvert in its own kind of surface level text. Yeah, I think the film the film is doing everything that it can to run so hard from conversations of gender that it runs face first into face the wall of into gender. <laughs> Because even with that too, like like this is this is a film that's all about the kind of other side of the the less discussed side of the male gaze, right? Like this is a film for guys. This is a dudes rock kind of movie, and yeah. like Riddick, the the kind of vehicle for the for the kind of appreciative male gaze in this film, right? Has has his eyes enhanced so he can be more of a man than he was previously. Like his his gaze literally shifts, so he can be more dominant, more quote unquote alpha. Yeah, which and it's, and it's doesn't work. So yeah, it's so strange when you also when you contrast that with this, like this this like, honestly a super uncomfortable scene to watch now. Yeah, let's let's talk about the f- wait. I mean, like the scene with Jack is is single handedly the most fucked scene in this entire film. In but, this entire in the in the entirety of this space horror movie with monsters that eat people. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, but we have another scene which is like right next to it, and that's uh, our cast is walking through the the kind of bones of the corpses of giant space whales or something that yep. were presumably picked clean by our uh, space pterodactyl xenomorph uh, cicadas. Cicadas. Yeah. Yeah. And Riddick is like creeping around through the bones, being a sneaky guy. And he like cuts off a section of Carolyn Fry's hair, sniffs it, and then like flicks the hair away into the breeze. And a scene that I can only describe as something that has gotten people banned from subreddits. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. Yes. And I think like, Uh, I mean, like, I think it's interesting to pick the scene apart formally as well, because Riddick is clearly being set up as an anti-hero here. He's a space killer on the run from the space cops, but his savage instinct is what they need to to defeat the xenomorph space pterodactyl cicadas. 
Um, but that scene, I think, in, in addition to the scene with Jack, as well as a few others, like, demonstrates a core conflict with that, right? Because by the end of the movie, Riddick is about to let Jack and everyone else die so he can escape alone in the ship. It's only Carolyn Fry's presence that ultimately stops him from doing that and gets him to go back and save everybody. So yeah. Riddick, Riddick is not even an anti-hero. Riddick is just dead weight. In the movie, he's just a bad guy. Like yeah. the film fails to round the corner and make him good. Because it, I mean, like, oh, I was just going to say that I, even even in the end, Carolyn Fry sacrifices herself to save Riddick for reasons we'll never know. And like Riddick goes back and he's like, I'm going to fly the ship and get everybody out of here. But that's not that's not saving people. That's him just saving himself. You know, like like there's there's no reason for for him to kill those people at this point. Right. They might be useful for him down the road. Yeah, which is the fundamental, this, there's this fundamental kind of like narrative tension in the film, which is never able to resolve. And I think you're completely right that the ground on which you see those contradictions and fissures is in the tectonic plates of how the film like details and handles uh, gender roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this constant like desire to reinscribe a kind of heteronormativity onto Riddick um, by the script you know, like smelling the pretty lady's hair because he's an animal and he's a mm-hmm. beast. And it's like, actually, it just makes the entire character so much less interesting and actually gets it in the way of there being any coherent, like emotional or moral or character growth based arc. And like the patriarch as beast is a classic gothic trope, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Rochester, Beauty and the Beast, like it's all over the place. Manfred. Like, wow, I said Manfred's name weird there. Manfred. Half man, Man, half Fred. Fred. Yeah. Bitten by a radioactive Fred. (laughs) (laughs) I was a mild-mannered man, and then one day I was bitten by a man named Fred. Now he has the size, speed, and agility of... (laughs) Fred. Of a guy called Fred. (laughs) But no, I I think this... It's 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 just a dude who's been bitten by the lead singer of Limp Bizkit. It's fine. (laughs) Oh well, th- that would actually be a, a, a superpower, though. <laughs> that, that would legitimately that you can see give in the you dark. something. <laughs> it's that you <laughs> can you can fishing. bring back rap rock. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm oh. sorry, I've dragged his way off course. <laughs> you it's were making one an of excellent days. point. <laughs> it is just one of those. You're making an excellent point about the gothic patriarch. Oh, no, but so so, like I think that the film kind of fails to stick the landing on that one, too, because like one of the things about these gothic patriarchs is they ultimately have to resolve some core conflict about their participation in patriarchy. That's kind of like one of the the, the key features, even in the early gothic, even in fiction that's like over 200 years old at this point, like that was a core part of their character. Riddick never has to come to that point. He never has to make these realizations because Carolyn Fry does all the work for him. Yeah, and I th- I think what's what's really telling is that like they they could make it off this desert planet so many points in this movie so much faster and so much more easily if Riddick and the bounty hunter Johns put aside their kind of like petty differences and saved everybody's lives, but like they're 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 kind of like masculinized egos keep clashing with each other. They are unable to regulate their emotions and have any kind of emotional awareness. And that that is what ultimately like keeps jeopardizing people's lives when these space pterodactyl cicada xenomorphs come out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's also that's also something that I think uh, takes us into sunshine because there's a similar dynamic in sunshine that we can ultimately get into when we're talking about that film. 
Well, should we use this as the the bridge point to get into um, what if technocrats had to try and save the world? <laughs> yeah, let's 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 talk about uh, uh, how nuclear weapons are fucking good in a science way, in a, in a I fucking love science kind of way. I fucking love yeah, let, nuclear proliferation. Let's let's talk about Neil deGrasse Tyson's favorite film of two thousand seven. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's 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 way meaner than I really meant it to be. Uh, let's talk about Danny Boyle's Sunshine. That's that's going to make it sound like there's absolutely nothing we like about Sunshine, but there's actually a lot I really enjoyed about Sunshine. I, I'm I'm not going to lie. I really like this movie a lot. I think it's extremely cool. The sound uh, design and the score, fucking kick ass. Hey, hey, who knew that Chris Evans could actually act? Right. <laughs> <laughs> This is just proof that we need to put Chris Evans back into these kind of like B roles, right? He needs to be back on the sidelines. Yeah, a hundred percent. Where would so you? The cast, you I mean, the cast, the cast is fantastic. I, I totally agree about the visual landscape, how we approach effects in this one. In the same way that I love the use of like filters and different approaches to depicting light, I love that so much in Sunshine. When we get that early scene with Searles. And he's like baking himself alive in the you can look at the sun or kill yourself room. Yeah. Uh, which which we'll get into. I don't know why they put that in the spaceship, but we'll get we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. For some reason, they put a room in the spaceship that you could tell the AI to let the sun blow you up. I'm, I'm not I sure. Mean, well, that's a very oh, Elon Musk addition to the, to yeah, the Icarus 2. It's a Monday. Guess I'm going to the blow me up room. <laughs> like I get, I get having like a viewing room where you can look at the sun, right, as a way to keep the crew sane on their on their like suicide mission to restart a dying star. But why, uh, outside of like theoretical things and artistic things we can interpret, I could not figure out why you would have a button that like toasted yourself alive. Like I don't know why they put that on the ship. It's like yeah, if your car um, had a button that like shot the rear axle through your spine for no reason. Like I don't know why that's there. Yeah, apparently that's getting patched out on the next Tesla software update. Oh, so. that's a, I was I was trying to hit the make the horn do the fart button, and I accidentally hit the blow up all the batteries at once button. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a there's a lot that I love about uh, the movie. The, the the cast is insanely stacked. Uh, Hiroyuki Sonata, Benedict Wong, Michelle Yeo, uh, Killian Murphy, who's been incredible in pretty much every movie he's ever done. Like, it, and incredible practical and special effects. Like, there's so much to enjoy here. I could not agree more. There, But there are a couple of, like, big things that I think we can get into first, which Almost is... solar big. Yeah, galactically big. Um, which is firstly, what you think about this as a, as a climate change film, because I think in a very coded in a, and in, in a not so coded way, that's what it is. Um, and what you think about geoengineering as a means of remedying that. So what I, what I find to be really interesting about this is uh, before before we hit hit the record button, I, we sadly missed out on an amazing point where you said something like, just make a movie about climate change, you fucking cowards. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) and i and i like that's kind of part of part of my take here is like i get the climate change metaphor the same as i got it with armageddon i got it with deep impact like like i know the asteroid is the oil executives the whole time we pull off its mask like a scooby-doo character and it's just exxon at this point where we are in climate collapse 
I, I kind of look at this and I'm like, it's it's embarrassing is, is the reaction I get. Like, I'm embarrassed that this is how we were telling stories of climate because like this is so sad there's so much cope going on here there's so much like we have layers of diffusion so we can't actually talk about the problem at all we have to make up a bunch of stuff it's it's like yeah, so yeah, psychoanalytic why, why is yeah why why is the earth uh in a solar winter oh the sun is going out uh, why is that happening? Uh, we don't really know. Yeah, the sun, <laughs> the sun's an EP little guy. The sun had to go take yeah, a nap. Sun EP, sun EP. But I actually do think there is something in this suggestion of like colossal, large scale galactic geoengineering that is worth talking about, right? Oh, I, I, so, I completely agree. And I, I agree, I agree with the kind of like the cope of like abstracting the metaphor. But I'm also like. It is kind of cool that you have a film that believes that the necessary political organization exists to do this kind of like... Um, Andreas Malm has this really interesting theory about climate change, which is mm-hmm. ba- uh, basically war communism ecology. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it, it's going to get bad. And so yeah. what you need is you need kind of war communism, but for for the environment. Mm-hmm. And that's going to... That's probably going to require some sort of planetary geoengineering um and what that necessarily requires is a sort of a a project on a political scale that currently seems to be unimaginable so what do you think about the film as this kind of like war communism ecology so that's a that's a really interesting point that i actually didn't consider while watching it but i find it to be really refreshing to hear because i was approaching this from the other side of that theoretical spectrum if you will right I was approaching this from the context of... So when I think of kind of stellar engineering, right, and geoengineering, I think of the kind of pie-in-the-sky nonsense that is like the Dyson sphere, that we could strip mine Jupiter, the planet, and turn it into a net for our own sun and extract more energy than humanity has ever used every second of every day forever, Right, like something something so cartoonish. And then like I think of like Roko's Basilisk, the most laughable thought experiment of of our time now. Yeah. And like I think I think of all of these kind of like grand technocratic visions of a future in in a present moment where we can't figure out public transit. And it's not that we can't figure out, I should say, it's that we are not allowed to implement solutions for public transit because they go against the profit motive of capital. Yeah, exactly. And so there is to to my mind, there is something um, kind of utopian in the vision of like it's an international crew. Oh it's yeah, a, it's a repurposing, and we will get more into the 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 fissile material thing in a bit. But it's a repurposing of like annihilationist tools of destruction. Presumably, there is like a polit- a global internationalist political infrastructure that's put the mission yeah. together. So, like, the big problem with with so much of contemporary discourse around geoengineering as a solution is that it's privatized, right? It's it's subordinated to the profit motive. Obviously, the stakes are drawn very simplistically to give you kind of the emotional resonance, but it's like there is no profit motive motive mm-hmm. here, right? Which I I think is I think is worth kind of bringing up and kind of uh, being like actually there is there is still the utopian aspect to this kind of science fiction, and I find that I find that really refreshing to to approach this movie from that kind of like marxist utopian standpoint and i think i think it is a good time to get into the mining all the fissile materials on earth logistics hour yes let's, and like let's, 
Because, oh my God, when they, when they said that in this movie, I just like wrote a few thousand words of notes in a fugue state and, and came to a few days later. It was a very strange experience. Um, so some of the stakes, for people who have not seen the film, some of the stakes of this are the Icarus II is carrying a payload which is made up of the last fissile material on Earth. Yes. Uh, so if it doesn't work, there is no other chance to do this. Yeah, the Icarus um, one uh, failed and was carrying, I guess, the other half of Earth's entire fissile, mineable fissile material. Yeah, we found some more down the back of the couch. This is this is truly the last roll of the dice. And even or, or like what what I feel would have been much more likely is is oh the first one failed and then like a bunch of like nuclearly armed world powers were like oh my god oh I uh, a bookkeeping error we found a bunch of fissile material we forgot we had. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so this this I find to be really interesting because this is the part where I was like, oh my god, this is kind of utopian, you know? Because in order in order to repurpose all fissile material on the planet to attempt to save Earth, like that would require every single nuclear capable country to fully disarm. This is and the, isn't isn't that cool? <laughs> that, yeah, that's amazing. Like that's that's the subtext of what they had to do is like that's fissile material. This is the full nuclear disarmament of Earth. That involves the full dismantling of the potential of Earth becoming nuclear, right? The, the kind of like, and we can have like, I think like a sub argument here about whether or not nuclear energy represents a good stopgap solution in the climate change crisis. But I think beyond that, like this, this kind of implies that like, oh, we had to, we're, we're going to have to figure a way out of now a petro and a post-fission kind of climate economy, which yeah, is, is really hopeful, which is really a really utopian part of this movie because that's us figuring out like... Not only the current like geopolitical nightmare of fossil fuels, but also the one that would be looming immediately after that. Yeah, there's something quite Promethean, right? I, this is so. This is the kind of big, the big tension I think in a lot of contemporary Marxist or leftist thought is this idea of Prometheanism versus degrowth. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think there is a fundamental contradiction or if there is that's the point at which we kind of get good answers but this is this is in a sense quite literally a prometheus movie right uh, although oh, totally. a prometheus a prometheus in reverse right instead and of stealing stealing fire from the from the gods you're taking fire back to the heavens yeah and and, and to to really underscore your point here is like i th- this film struck me as a very staunch degrowth film right cuz the the kind of core message of that uh, nuclear fission point in the film is like oh we have to there's a whole military industrial ap- apparatus so there's a whole like power grid apparatus that has to be dismantled and repurposed yeah right like it is very degrowth and i totally agree that these things are not inherently contradictory and in fact like i don't know any kind of like war communism ecological standpoint would necessarily need to wield both yeah uh, and i think that's what this film is in it is an attempt to kind of like literalize and and you know the crew seems relatively convinced and relatively sure that they're all going to die doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know this is Chris Evans' point. There is there is there are no bigger stakes. There's nothing more important. Yeah. And the, and the um, whole crew agrees with that too. I also found it kind of refreshing that there wasn't much in the way of like petty squabbles between the crew. Everybody was like pretty much on board with what they had to do. And I think I think this reflects so like uh, Brian Cox, professor of physics at the University of Manchester, was a big consultant. A lot of the guys, uh, people at NASA, were very heavily involved with the film. Mm-hmm. Um, that like you know the the actors all got like high level physics lectures, 
um, as like mm-hmm. preparation for this. And this is what I mean when I say this is kind of like a perfect movie for technocrats. <laughs> like if if you if you were like a communist uh, in communist government, this would be the science fiction film you would want everyone to see. <laughs> Because you're right, they're all like they're all like militantly committed. They're all willing to die. They're all like in incredibly highly trained in very specific areas. And like the film itself is is from what I can find out, like relatively realistic, except its final third, which we we can get into. I, I guess my my question is, what do you think about this? Is like a, a te- and I don't necessarily mean this in a kind of negative sense, but as a technocratic sci-fi movie that then turns into like a haunted house film in the final third <laughs> like a weird theology movie so i, I find i find the final third to be, be really interesting because as we you know like we have a very heterodox approach to left politics here on the show and i think the final third of this really hammers home like a, a very anarchistic point about like a hierarchy as a functional social technology it, it, every everybody is on board for this mission right like the the hierarchies dissolve and reform as they are necessary and this gets so apparent at the end of the film where everyone has to start sacrificing themselves for the ultimate fate of uh, uh, giving the sun its morning coffee, I guess. And so when we have the kind of like, so in the second, in the I guess the, the third of the film, the final third, we have uh, the captain of the Icarus One, who I guess for seven years has been roasting himself alive in the in the lethal sunroom that is for some reason on the first icarus i don't know why they built two of those let alone one uh i love that i have two things i love that it's mark strong who's maybe one of the best like villain actors Mm -hmm. uh and i love that he says he's been conversing with god yeah (laughs) what have you been doing for seven years you there with your charred skin it's like yeah conversing with god i'm like Yes, I'm 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 so I'm so on board with this twist. And so like, oh god, there's so much there's so much we need to unpack about about this twist that 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 goes on in the end here, right? Because the captain of the Icarus 1 has been just just ta- in in the world's most powerful tanning booth, or I guess the solar system's most powerful tanning booth uh for 7 years uh praying to the god of looking bronze. And like on the Icarus 2, we also have Searle, the ship psychologist. Who, who has started down the same path, right? He's been baking himself to the point of his skin peeling and blistering, and no one seems to notice or care, which is very concerning. And I think it's I think it's a good ominous point in a way that like, the, you know, I was looking at reviews of this and some people seem to suggest that like, oh, the Icarus 2 is kind of the hopeful version of like, Searle's communing with the sun god and it bends him towards good, whereas the captain of the Icarus 1 was bent to evil and but also, you know, Searle, Searle's baking himself before the sun god ends prematurely, right? He he ends his his cook time before <laughs> the captain of the Icarus one. So there is kind of like a, a deep space isolation psychosis thing going on here that it's only dumb luck that the second ship wound up succeeding. Yeah, exactly. A very atheistic and, point. Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is the space theology that you get in a film that's like made with the help of NASA, right? Yeah where where it is what there is is no there is no there is no like non-materiality and so mm-hmm. uh the the kind of moment of the divine right if you put it in the language of something like solaris the moment of like transcendence is right at the end where kappa kind of like blissfully reaches out to touch it as as it starts to reignite and that's your moment of like that's the closest that you get to a kind of moment of like 
trans- transcendent sublimity in the Burkean sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's entirely, you're right, it's entirely atheistic. There's no, there is no, the supernaturalism of, of you know, the Icarus One is completely hollow, it's completely void. And it's this idea of like, actually, space is this kind of cosmic emptiness that empties human subjectivity. Absolutely. I think this might be a good time, too, to try and locate the fiction in this particular science fiction, because we talked a lot about, like, like f- famously, this is the movie that made Killian Murphy an atheist. This this movie was made in conjunction with NASA. This movie had prerequisite physics lectures. This is a very nonfiction fiction movie. Yeah. And while I was watching it, I was like, okay, like, what are what are the fiction elements then? Because we have a very realistic spacecraft. And sure, we've got the the fantasy uh, bomb that's going to make the sun feel good about itself again. Um, whatever's going on with that, I ho- I'm glad the sun got pepped up at the end of this movie. But not too pepped up. That would have been a separate problem uh, that apparently Earth would have been unprepared for. But when I was like considering this, like I was also thinking of like the, the other point that I was thinking about like utopian potentials in was that the, the, fiction, the fiction of this movie is that we could, before it's too late, overcome the limitations imposed on us by capitalism yeah yeah that that's the dream right that's the dream that facing like all we need is like high enough stakes i i think another utopian aspect to pick up on what you're saying is the very ending um Mm -hmm. which is getting close to the sun is effectively traveling into the future Mm -hmm. right because of because of position and physics magic because of physics, because of I fucking love science, because of <laughs> because of the smart people tell me so, but because of like relative position and speeds of light. So like your communication can only go backwards in time because that's how long it takes light to reach Earth. And so like the idea of them listening to Kappa's last broadcast on Earth is essentially a ghost from the future talking back to us rather mm-hmm. than a ghost from the past talking forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's I think that's a beautiful point about the end of Sunshine. Hello, hello. Uh, uh Space Orbit One to John, are you there? Uh sorry, I had to just duck out and go into the um uh the easy bake oven room that we've got set up here. Space station greenaway, can you read me? Hello, hello, hello. Come in come in or orbital station litcrit guy. Are you there? Uh, I am. Uh, as I say, I just I just stepped into my um, Easy Bake Oven viewing platform. Um, <laughs> someone really needs to tell me to dial back on the tanning booth hours, but I'm fine. I'm feeling good. For 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 a brief second there, I was like, oh no, I'm gonna like re- reconnect to this call and get like seven years of podcast audio from you in a single moment, <laughs> thanks to the convoluted <laughs> flow of time. <laughs> But no, uh, to, to pick us back up uh, from, from where we left off uh, before the sun burnt off comms tower one and prevented us from podcasting. Um, uh, imagine, if you will, a future so utopian that NASA has to send podcasters to the sun because the sun needs to hear some good podcasts in order to cheer up. We've got it. I've got some Badu takes that are going to pick the sun right up today. Absolutely. <laughs> But no, so so I, th- I think one thing that I do want to talk about, and this this connects us back in uh, to the Chronicles of Riddick: colon, Pitch Black, is gender. I, I want to talk about gender here in in Sunshine. Absolutely, do a slingshot through the gender gravity well, straight into the heart of discourse. Uh, and so, so the first thing that I want to mention is like this is a weirdly misogynistic movie, and when I say weirdly, I mean subtly in a way that reinforces gender norms. Yes. 
because uh, for, first, right off the bat, uh, we have, oh my God, what is her name? It's in my other notes document. I have too many notes documents. So we have uh, Chipo Chung, who is the voice of the Icarus. She's the uh, space station AI girlfriend voice. Yeah. And like, like obviously, we we have the uh, real world discourses of all AI voice assistants having femme voices, which reinforce gendered stereotypes of women uh, being subordinated into the role of assistants. Also, Icarus is kind of a scold and kind of a nag, constantly reminding the crew what they should do, what they need to do, which further problematizes the gendered position of that voice. Uh, we also have Paloma Beza as just Kappa's sister. I mean, like you're going to have these like side roles, but when the rest of the movie has these kind of like gendered positions like having her as like an unnamed character with just some kids you know representing the future reproductive capacity of humanity i think uh, paging some... lee edelman and queer futurity <laughs> won't um, i mean the the kind of moral message of the film is very much won't somebody think of the children yes oh deeply uh, but then we also have I, I think what is really interesting here is who saves the day at the end Mm-hmm. Right, like who who saves the day? In fact, throughout most of the movie, and it's not Kappa, it's not the guy that knows how to push the buttons on the bomb. It's actually Cassie. Yes, right, uh, because we have uh, Chris Evans' character is the rightful heir to to being the captain of the ship. Um, after the other guy, who's the rightful heir of being the captain of the ship, dies, there's like a chain of ship's captains that keep dying. Yeah, it's like the royal family. <laughs> <laughs> But so Cassie, Cassie, who's not immediately in this chain of command, is the one that effectively assumes the duties and responsibilities of ship's captain and is kind of like, by by the logic of the movie, subordinated into being uh, Kappa's assistant in a way. And like, also, like, it's her sacrifice, right? She has to sacrifice her life, not in the same way that other people do. Chris Evans' character gets to sacrifice his life to save the ship. Uh, everybody else either dies in in the course of saving the ship or dies for the mission specifically. Uh, but Cassie has to uh, sacrifice herself in mortal combat with uh, a, a, a living human beef jerky <laughs> in, order, in order to allow Kappa to, to facilitate his mission. And this, I, I think, also plays into some, I'll say, uh, hashtag problematic gender discourses here because she has to do this kind of like heavy we get like oh my god uh, kappa and chris evans character also fight all the time and it's also broken up by cassie in addition to others and so we we have the same kind of like recurring theme where it's this like unspoken femme sacrifice right it's her unspoken emotional labor it's this unspoken reproductive labor that's keep keep, that that is the reason why the ship makes it to the sun to save the entirety of humanity and the logic of the movie totally ignores that the logic of the movie is like one great man physicist can save all of humanity it's it's if there's something that I really didn't like about this movie, it's that the final moments with Kappa border on Randian and how individualistic they are. Yeah, I think this is this is the the kind of formalistic problem, uh, the conventions of like cinema storytelling. Because um, you could, you, I I couldn't agree more actually, and I think it's very telling that there is. I think your point about you know they've oh they did they did Hal from two thousand and one a Space Odyssey but uh, we made it we made it a femme coded voice for for reasons we won't get into who who knows why anybody decides to do anything <laughs> who knows why Alexa and Siri and the Google voice and co- assistant and uh-oh. yeah mm, that takes us into some weird territory um, but your your point about uh, Chris Evans' character and Killian Murphy's character being this 
sublimated sight of like the power struggle uh, mm-hmm. is 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 I think very prescient. That you know they cut apparently there were sex scenes that were planned to be in this movie. They decided to cut them out, but and and I get I get the logic of why. But even something like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Mars trilogy mm-hmm. ha- actually had people that felt more like people because there were like romantic and sexual, like social problems that had to be worked out. It wasn't that mm-hmm. everybody was this kind of like militantly committed Reddit <laughs> atheist <laughs> who is ready to die to save their sister and their children's and their you know nieces and nephews they'll never meet. And I think this is this is one of the big problems about the kind of logic behind Sunshine because it's the same it's the same internal logic of Pitch Black, right? And it's I think the same internal logic of like this kind of climate passivity that we're like working hopefully working our way through through right now. Knock on wood. But like we're we're, we're all kind of, we're waiting for Killian Murphy to show up with the suitcase that can make the sun happy again. We're like we're we're waiting for Riddick. To, to defeat the space alien xenomorph cicadas when in actuality the people who are doing the work are already right here you know yeah, we're, we're exactly. already doing the work to save ourselves we just have to get out of our own fucking way and save ourselves and, and these movies are kind of like not quite at that point of being able to have those conversations they're still too bound to these like gendered dynamics they're still too bound to these randian conventions that are baked into capital do you think a big part of this is simply le- the le- the logistical challenge of space itself, right? Like we take ourselves into space, but because of the vast scale and the fact that like all of that work to unpick those things of like the big problem, of course, is not space. The big problem is like it's us who's going to space, right? We 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 get away from the Earth in order to save it, but we find that we brought the kind of social patterns of Earth with us. Well, I, I think you're com- completely correct with that. We don't go to space as as much as we take ourselves elsewhere, if that makes sense. You know, like yeah. like the the space the space race is a great example. The furthest we we've sent the living human being in into orbit was really just a dick measuring contest between the United States and the USSR, and it stopped the second that it was clear America was in the lead, and we don't need to go to space anymore. Okay, and now here's, space is just kind question. of a privatized thing. Yeah, go, go on, go on. If the USSR had won the space race and space had, like, instead of, like, NASA and private industry taking over the cultural imagination, we had, like, the futurists uh, uh, who believed in, like, resurrecting the dead to populate the stars Um and the Russian cosmists, like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be like, a, that would, that would make the space horror film kind of like l- almost literally unthinkable because space wouldn't be this kind of emptiness anymore. Space would be uh, like this potential capacity. I, I think it, I, I think it would have kind of done the inverse. It would have freed the potential of the space horror film. Yeah. You know, because it, yeah. For, for the exact reasons that you're saying, because we would have, Right now we have an apocalyptic view to the stars, right? Like there's nothing out there that doesn't suck. And that's because everything down here kind of sucks. And that suck, it turns out, is in our hearts. Yeah, the only thing that's up there is what's here. But it's like if the cosmists had won the space war, (laughs) if they had won the space race, uh, and we we realized actually, no, space is this empty potential, I think you're right. We We would get like 
we would get better and scarier space horror, but we would also get better, scarier, and more hopeful engagements with the concept of the cosmos itself. Humanity going to space right now is a little bit like someone trying to date while they still have tons of emotional baggage. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Like, like humanity, we're, we're getting sexy, we're working on ourselves, but we are so not over our ex that is the, the petrochemical capitalist state. Yeah. And now, yeah. We're trying, now we're trying to go to outer space and we are just not ready. Just taking and, and this all is, of that baggage. And this is a very Vulcan point. I mean, like, like even early in the lore of Star Trek, the Vulcans are like, fuck, we really don't want humanity in space because these dickheads just put it together and they're so going to ruin the scene if they show up. <laughs> A little but bit I, of I think, work on oh, ourselves, I, and we might get there. <laughs> and I, th- I think your I think your point about like, you know, which which vision of space here is really important. Who gets to just dictate the terms of our stellar imaginations, right? And and how we get to have these conversations, and and like specifically when it comes to climate too, because like like we were talking about earlier, like. Armageddon and Deep Impact and Sunshine and all these movies are really just about our anxieties with climate change and trying to deal with them and tell stories about them. But they're all being told from the perspective of like, so Sunshine, in a way, like something about it that kind of scares me is Sunshine is the vision of like a an Obama era, era technocratic solution, this kind of Clintonian view of space and how we could save ourselves from the sun that would shake up capitalism greatly but it's not in and of itself necessarily a vision that includes the negation of capitalism right and because like there's an absent core in sunshine too and that's like why is the sun feeling sad today you know like we know we know why climate change is being screwed up here on earth right we know why all these horrible things are happening it's capitalism it's our own hubris it's our inability to change and you know yeah. like in in sunshine it's just like no let's let's not talk about the root cause of this issue it's this very liberal technocratic thing yeah i think like i've said this before but like jeff bezos and elon musk look at this look at space and just see an extension of what is already here yes right for them there is there is nothing new there is no the new does not exist there just is a space that is waiting to be made more like the systems that benefit them here but mm-hmm. i i thought for a very long time that like the interesting thing about like russian cosmism and other like utopian exercises in the imagination like i think june is a good example is that there there becomes these potentials for um not just like weird new stuff but actually the kind of abnegation of the present and the fulfillment of you know the incomplete fabric of history itself which is like profoundly gothic at its core i think i think you are so completely correct about that we also have like Nettie okafor's vision of african futurism right we have like these views of like what if space could be so much more that's sun Ra. we have sun Ra. you know um we have afrofuturism in addition to african futurism right we have all of these views of like what if what if we could work out a, a good amount of our shit you know not even all of it like what if we could just work out enough to to kind of get over the slump that we're in and i do find that to be incredibly beautiful and hopeful and like 
in a very Jamesonian way, this kind of like utopian seed that just needs to be nurtured. So we're approaching the end. Uh, if I'm, I'm looking at my watch here. Uh, hey, Siri, are we in line to deliver the uh, payload of podcasts to the sun? Uh, uh, and here's here's where I'm not going to do this because that's too much work. I'm not going to put in Siri saying, yes, uh, we're delivering podcasts to the sun. Well, um, if you're listening to this um, and you look up one day and you realize <laughs> that... <laughs> Your understanding of horror movies have shifted, just a, <laughs> j- even just a little bit. Then you'll know, you'll know that we made it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, like like a like a comic book villain. We we just like like the sun now projects the horror vanguard logo onto the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, you know, like Mr. Burns says, man has always dis- yearned to destroy the sun, but maybe <laughs> what's needed is a podcast to reignite the fire of the sun in our hearts. <laughs> okay, that's beautiful. That's where the episode ends. That's fantastic. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky. Spooky.